This morning, we are just at the conclusion of our long series in Romans chapter 6 through 8. Actually, we have finished up the last verses of chapter 8. But as sometimes happens in long series, there are subjects you come across, you'd say, I'd really like to give a little more time on that subject, but uh, you're pressed on because uh, you have a paragraph that you want to address. So this morning, what we're going to do is go back and we're going to look at something basically we talked about last week, but actually occurs all through the book of Romans, obviously. It's a book about faith and justification. So I want to go back and talk about this subject of faith, genuine faith. There are all kinds of faith, but we want to talk about the biblical faith and it being genuine. So I want to give attention to that. What faith when faith is genuine. It's a very familiar term. Everybody says that term. You have listened to probably more than one person this week saying, I have faith. I have faith that my husband's going to shape up. Just needs a little more encouragement from me. Or vice versa. I, I believe by faith God's going to get us through those teenage years and By faith, I believe that God's going to supply me with a job, and on and on it goes. And there's nothing wrong with those terms of faith. But what kind of faith does it take to have salvation? What kind of faith is that? We read in Ephesians, we'll be addressing this verse this morning. For by grace are you saved through faith. What does that mean? Does that simply mean that I believe a body of truth and because I assent to that truth, that that's really what salvation is? Or does it really mean something more? Now, some have taken the position that what we're going to talk about this morning is a little bit, uh, well, it's about intellectualism. I assure you that it isn't. It's not intellectual at all. It's just taking God at his word. We want to look at who's the author of faith. Do I author that faith? Does that faith, salvation faith, does that come from me or does it come from God? Wow, I think that's rather important, don't you? Uh, Whether God is the author of saving faith or I am the author of my own faith. So those are some of the things that we want to address this morning. And most importantly, which I have here thirdly, is how is one to know? How do you know that you have genuine faith? Now, people say, well, if you have genuine faith, you probably won't have any problems in life. Jobs will just come. The children will all be healthy. They will have straight teeth. And on and on it goes. That obviously is not true. If one struggles with their faith, then that's probably something that you and I need to look at Scripture and say, okay, is this genuine faith? Does this come out of cultural Christianity, which is very sloppy with the concept of faith? So what is it? And if our destiny in the future depends on biblical, genuine faith, I would think this is probably pretty important. But really... As important as genuine faith has much to do with how I live today. Sanctification, as we've looked at for many weeks, the process from spiritual birth to glory with our Lord, our resurrected body, and heaven itself becomes an enormous understanding. And so we're going to gently go through this this morning. 
the big point I would have for you this morning we want to uh, consider is where does faith come from? Where does this faith come from? Most of us have grown up in a cultural Christianity setting, for lack of a better word, in which God gives us information and we must have the faith to respond. And if we have faith to respond, God will save us. Well, who authors that faith? Is God just putting out the information and I have to come up with a faith? Or does that faith actually come from God which responds to the faith? Which is the biblical foundation here? Well, I'm going to give you a couple examples. You'll see on the screen here momentarily. Genuine faith must have three components. You may want to give careful attention in your notes to these. If you like acrostics, it's C-A-T. That's easy for some of you. It spells cat. Uh, Consent to a body of information. Um, Then I have to affirm that I believe that information is true. Is it correctly given? Does that body of truth, is that correct? Is it factual? And then when I come to this third one, going through consent, affirmation, can you think what that would be? It's on the board. Oh, wow. That makes it easy even for the teacher. Trust. He wasn't to give away the... I trust that it is true. Now, we use this all the time, really. Uh, You will use this in everyday life. You will have genuine faith. For instance, if I would use the illustration, and I've used this before, it may not be the best one, but uh, since I'm familiar with it, I'll use it again. History has a body of truth about George Washington. We know him as the first president of the United States. And there are just thousands of pages about information about the reality of George Washington. You and I would say, well, I don't doubt that. Obviously, there's just too much proof that uh, he was the first president of the United States. Okay, so there is a body of information. There is a body of information about this truth. Then there comes a time as I, as I look at that information, I affirm whether it's valid or it's not valid. And probably most of us this morning here would say it is valid. That, that is true. There's just too much historical evidence. You can go to Mount Vernon and it's just kind of overwhelming information. It, it really wouldn't be too intellectual to say I deny that George Washington ever lived. But the critical thing becomes, and we just kind of automatically do this, we trust. Actually, you and I believe that to the extent that we would not only consent to it and affirm that it is true, but we would trust, we would rely upon that, and we would teach it to our children, and we put our children in schools that teach that. Because we have come to say, I believe it, and I make decisions based upon that. You do that in buying a house. All kinds of illustrations we can use. But let's, uh, let's use this again and let's go a little different way on it. 
uh, let's talk about Christ arose from the grave and he forgives sins. We would say, well, the Bible itself has information dealing with Christ arose from the grave, death, burial, resurrection, third day he arose. And because of that, he is able to forgive the sins of people. That's information. Now, whether you believe it or not at this point is not really important to us at this juncture. You would agree that there is such a body of truth. Yeah, if you want to read that, you can read it in the Bible. Probably read it in Josephus, a Jewish historian. But number two is affirmation, confidence. I'm persuaded that Christ arose from the grave and forgives sins based upon... I see that information as trustworthy. I have taken the time to look at it, and I am convinced that it's trustworthy information. I confirm it to be true. Thirdly, then, I will use specifically the word trust here, consent to that information, affirm, yes, there is credible historical evidence, the Bible, yes, it's the infallible word of God, every word is true, yes, so... I affirm that is true. Now I trust it. I trust what it says. I absolutely believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that my sins are forgiven. Because what the Bible says. Now, this puts us in a good position because there are those who say, well, Christians who believe in the Bible and they believe salvation in Christ arose and And because of that, sins are forgiven. That's just blind faith. You know, if you need some kind of a crutch to lean on in difficult times, then, yeah, I suppose some human beings accept that. Well, blind faith is faith that believes in no information. This is not blind faith. And in our witnessing, we have to correct our friends sometimes when they say that believing the Bible is blind faith. No, there is a body of truth. Whether you believe the truth or not, it's another issue. But it's not blind faith because there is information. And for many of you, you affirm that information is true. And you trust it. You trust it and say, I know. I know from the information from the Bible been confirmed by the Spirit of God, it is true, and my sins are gone. And there is no question in your mind. I could not argue you out of that point. That's it's trustworthy. It's, you rely upon that. You make personal decisions. I don't go back and ask Christ to forgive me of my sins over and over and over. Why? Because they are forgiven. I confess But I don't ask him every day to forgive me my sins. Why? Because he said he did. Past, present, and what? Future. We confess our sins on a daily basis because we are not sin-free. We do commit sin. I confess them with the reality is that they're already what? Forgiven. But he wants me to confess it to acknowledge that I did wrong. And I'm trusting in his ever-shedding of his blood. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. That's a great assurance. Well, let's try something else here. Let's try a third one, and then we'll move on. But in the third set, let's change it just a little bit. Christ arose from the grave and forgives sins if one obeys. 
Now, some of you would say, I agree with that. Some of you would say, I don't agree with that. But nevertheless, it's information. And we all would agree it is a body of truth. It's a body of information. It's proposed to be true. Secondly, I have to come to the place where do I affirm this? Do I have confidence that this is true? I might say something. I'm persuaded that Christ arose from the grave and forgives sins if one obeys based upon the trustfulness or the trustfulness of that information. Now, you probably would have a little problem with that. You'd say that is information, but that's not in the Bible. And no. No, I can't affirm that because it's not true. What's not true about it? Well, you can see on the screen there's a condition to it. There are no conditions to salvation. It's not if I believe and obey, I possibly can be saved. No, the truth of Scripture is if you truly believe, if you have genuine faith, you will obey. Not because you have to obey to keep your salvation, but the confirmation is you will obey. You'd say, well, that's kind of, no, it's not fuzzy at all. What's fuzzy is that cultural Christianity has twisted that thing around 180, and that's our confusion. And then we take the next step, perhaps, and say, well, are you saying once saved, always saved? No, I'm saying biblically, God says when he saves you, he saves you, and he saves you forever. We don't argue cultural Christianity's interpretation of Scripture. What we stand on is biblical truth. If I have genuine faith, and I do, then the conclusion is you will see me obeying. It's natural. Do I obey perfectly? No, I confess. We're growing. We're maturing in Christ-likeness. That's biblical truth. And then I rely, I, in this third set that you're looking at here, no, I, I, I would not rely upon that. It's not trustworthy because it's a lie. It's not biblical. Now, look at James 2.19. You've heard this verse before, and James says in his writings of the epistle, the letter, you believe that God is one? He's primarily talking to a Jewish audience who would know the Old Testament, do you believe there that God is a unity of one? He is one. There is oneness in His essence. There's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God. He is one. You do well. And then he says something quite interesting. You believe that? Well, the demons also believe. And they shudder. They are extremely afraid Wow. I believe God is one. I believe in a Trinitarian God. There's oneness in the Trinity. There's oneness in the Godhead. Yet there are three personal beings, not three personal somethings, not three personal stuffings, but three personal beings like you and me. Except they don't have physical bodies until Christ took on flesh at the Incarnation. But be that as it may, that's another discussion someday. And so what we have here are demons who believe what a lot of people believe, that God is one. They would believe in a Trinitarian God. As we've said many times, they were 
probably the best theologians of Jesus' day. They always had it right. They knew who he was. It's better than the Pharisees did and the Sadducees. But he says they shudder. Why do they shudder? Well, they shudder because they hate Christ. And they are opposed to Christ. But see, they believe. They believe a body of information about Christ. And they shudder. And James says, if you have belief, but you have no life of Christ... You have belief, but you do everything that you can, or I would do everything that I could not to obey. He says, and if you still say, I believe, but you have no desire to obey, then you're no better off than the demons. You ought to shudder too. You ought to be extremely afraid of the judgment that is coming to those who hate Christ. Look at Luke 4, 41 for a moment, please. Luke chapter 4, verses 40 and 41. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting. As Christ was relieving those who were infested by demons, he was bringing them out by his power. And they were shouting, you are the Son of God. That is a body of information that is true. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. The point of it here is they had right information. Did they have genuine faith? No. Did they accept Christ? Answer is what? No. You see, faith based upon information, that's correct. And yet they did not receive Christ. And there was a reason for that. The reason for that is they could not. Let's discuss that. So the demons believe in information, content concerning Christ. They affirm that that information is true, for they shudder. They, they believe it. They're afraid. But they cannot trust Christ as their Lord and Savior because they are the enemies of Christ. But you may say, and rightly so, but doesn't every human being have faith? Yes. Everyone has the ability to understand and have knowledge of certain content and have confidence that the content is true and actually trust and rely upon it. You go to buy a house, perhaps. You look at the information about the house. You like the house. You'd say all of the bank's information, everybody has told me, we believe is acceptable, it seems credible, and we're going to go sign the papers. Based upon consent, affirmation, there is what? Trust. And so trust brings action. I do something with it. We do that all the time. But there's something you can't do. You and I cannot do this when it comes to Christ. Not one person in this auditorium has the power in and of themselves to say, I got the information, I affirm it, and I'm going to do it. No, you won't. Because God says you cannot. It's impossible. 
say, well, that sounds not too biblical. Well, let's take a look at the Scriptures, Second Corinthians, if you would. Now, please understand what we're saying here. Do people in normal day lifestyle, do they have genuine faith? Yes. We do it all the time. But when it comes to Christ, as it is with the demons, that's the point. That's the reason I'm using that illustration. Their doom is already set. And God has already said that it is set for an eternity. There is no changing of a demon. A demon cannot be saved. But demons are not a human being. And Christ came to die for the sins of the world with you and I as humans. And we do, by God's enablement, can believe. Those of you in past weeks are very familiar with this. This is God's doing. Before the foundations of the world, knowing us, knowing who we are in Christ, knowing that He desires to choose us, what is the basis of God choosing us? All we know is God said, I did it. If you try to find an explanation of why, then you've got to also answer the question, why did he choose Israel from all among the nations of the world? Why? And he says this much, it was not because you were good. It's not because you were obedient. It wasn't because you were the largest of nations, because actually you were the fewest, you were the smallest. I chose you because I what? I love you. You know why you were chosen for salvation? Because God loves you. End of issue. He gives no further explanation. I loved you. Why does mankind not like to be loved by God? We want to argue that point and say, well, that's not fair. I don't think I'm willing to tell God that. God chooses. Foreknowledge is a word for special love. Affection. And then he marks out a plan. He says, I'm going to take you from birth to glory. I'm going to take you, if you, if genuine faith is there, and it's going to be if God's doing it, then I'm just as sure of heaven the first day that I was born again as I will be the last day here on earth. This is sealed, signed, and delivered here. Not like this. This is the way I grew up. Maybe. Come on, Don. Step it up a little bit. Have you confessed all your sins? Do you read your Bible every day? Do you pray every day? Don, 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 don. I'm thinking, man, I know I mess up sometimes. Ah, oh, you mess up, huh? Well, we're going to get a revival in a couple of weeks, and maybe you can revive yourself. I'm not mocking. I'm not making fun. We've got to get it right. And it's not my rightness. It's not this church's rightness. It's scriptural rightness. You and I do not have the prerogative to mess with God's Word. And neither do we want to. Have I ever? Yes. Sadly to say, out of ignorance, I have. Distorted it. I've tried to confess those things publicly as much as I remember them. Okay? 
Most of the time you remind me of it. That's okay. That's all right. Now then, let's look at this uh, chapter 4. Paul writing his second letter to the Corinthians is writing God's Word. It's inspired. It's being written down in letter form. The Holy Spirit makes sure it gets there right, so I, we know it's right here because obviously the Spirit of God makes a mistake. You have no God. If you have no God, we're in worse shape than we ever thought we were in. Verse 4, In whose case the God of this world, you'll notice most of your trans- translations, that's a small g, so that's Satan, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And we all come out of the womb unbelieving. There's nobody comes out saved. Even though you were baptized the eighth day, the first week, whatever, you just came out wet again. We're still sinful. We're sinners. And and Satan has, God has given him the prerogative, this is true, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving purpose statement so that they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. You can't, I can't, you can't. Before our conversion, we could not see, it did not make sense, we could not put it together. We may have done this and we have done this, but guaranteed we couldn't do that. We're blinded to it. He just says here, it's impossible. That they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants. Let's just get back to the biblical text. The word there is slave. Ourselves as your slave. We give of our lives to you. We're under the direction of Christ. We own, we have no rights. We are slaves for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. How did you and I say, yes, yes, oh, wow. That makes perfect sense to me didn't used to. I Was it because of my baptism, church membership? No. What does it say? It's the power of God that enlightens us. And we say, I believe. You'd say, but that sounds so, wow, you know, am I not worth anything? As far as saving yourself, no. Obviously, you're worth something or God wouldn't love you. But God says, let's get one thing straight. It is my work, all of this. Foreknowledge, predestined a plan from here to the end, called you, regenerated you, conversion, converted you. You responded because faith and what? Repentance. I immediately declared you right with God because of His righteousness imputed to you. Therefore, your sins are forgiven. You have standing before God. I adopted you into my family. You are a co-heir with Christ. And as Christ couldn't lose His relationship with the Father, neither can you and me. Now, we live in a pocket, what we call the Bible Belt, that does not like this. So when you go to work this week, people are going to say, oh, stop right there. 
Are you telling me once saved, always saved? Are you telling me you can't lose your salvation? You, are you telling me that, wow, you don't believe that, do you? Are you prepared to be faithful to God? Or do we go the cultural Christianity way and say, oh, well, I think as long as you're sincere, you're okay. The demons were very sincere, and they were not okay. Sincerity is not salvation. Wow. So the conclusion, then, is that human beings can express genuine faith. Yes, we do it all the time. But when it comes to believing and affirming and trusting and relying upon Christ and Christ alone saving me, keeping me saved all the way to heaven plus nothing, that is trust. That is trust. Now then, come with me to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, please. For by grace, this that is given to you without merit, for by grace you have been saved. You say, well, it it means just what it says, right? Yes. It is somewhat of an unusual structure because even though we couldn't do this in English, It's amazing. It has a present tense state of being verb with a, what we call a perfect, in other words, it has come to conclusion and stays concluded forever. And those two things are butted up against each other and the Holy Spirit had to be saying, there are no loopholes to this. It's impossible. So you have been saved, passive voice. God acted on you. You didn't say, ah, I... Okay, I think it's probably, yeah, my kids are sick, they got crooked teeth, and oh, yeah, I need a new job, need my marriage refreshed. Okay, I'll, I'll take your offer, Lord, and we'll try it out. Have you ever heard people say, well, look, why don't you just try Jesus? What? In light of Scripture, how can you try Jesus? You try Jesus? And if you don't like him, you give him up? I don't know. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is faith. When faith is genuine, when all three check marks are there. Now the tragedy is this sometimes. This happened early in my Christian life because I was taught a different system. If I could get a person there, do you believe this is... Information? Oh, yeah, I believe it's information. Do you affirm that it's probably true? Yeah, my parents took me to church. I think that's true. Well, why don't you just bow your head and repeat after me and you're saved? Extremely dangerous. Now, while I'm right there, let me just clarify one thing. Do I believe that everybody who is truly born again had somebody go through all these three points? No, I don't. I didn't hear those three points when I was saved in my backyard because somebody had been giving me information and working with him, praying for me. But I tell you what, if you truly have genuine faith, and this morning you would say, yes, yes, 
yes. That means it was genuine, even though nobody read these three checkpoints to you. My point is this, but it's extremely dangerous when you and I don't do that when we're sharing the faith. Because what's going to happen is that a person, you and I, would have a tendency to confirm a person born again because they're only here to CA, in that sense, these first two. And we confirm, as I sadly have done in the past, confirm, ah, now you are a believer. And God says, ooh. Now you can see the dilemmas coming here. This person is going to accept basically what you tell them because you're the Christian. They think they're saved, but are they? No. And they're going to think that they're going to begin to act like you, but they have no power to act like you because the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in them. And then when they really try their best and they cry out to God and they just try and try to do all the legalistic stuff, and then finally say, I, I give up, I quit, I can't do this stuff. You must have lost your salvation. No, you never had it. You never had it. And this is the reason why you and I in sharing the gospel have to be sensitive to this. God's going to do his work. God doesn't need my help to save people. What he needs to do for me is to give the information out accurately and biblically. And it's not that difficult to do, is it? I mean, you guys do it all the time. Notice in 2 Timothy 1.9. Who, refers to the Lord in verse 8, who has saved us. That's past tense, isn't it? He has saved us and called us. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It happened back here. That's when God did it. And there comes that time in which the Spirit of God works upon us because faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And as the Holy Spirit works off that message, does this in our life, we come to the place in His timing in which we say, well, this is obviously something that I need to do, I want to do. And so he says, he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, look at just a couple of verses beyond that. 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason, Paul says, I also suffer these things. Now, he's talking about his ministry. And when you go out proclaiming this, that 21st century man does not have the ability, he does not have the intellect, because he is blinded by Satan, that message is a no-go in our culture. Because we Americans can do anything. You give me enough education, give me just a little bit of time, I can pull it off. I can do it, I can do it. Our culture just walks around pumping each other up. It'll never happen. Not in salvation. This is what he's telling us. So in 2 Timothy 1.12, for this reason I also suffer because the culture of Paul's day was antagonistic. Think how in Jesus' day the culture was antagonistic towards Jesus. They killed him. Why? Over the message. 
you don't need somebody to come in and get Rome out of here. That's, that's doable. I can do that, Christ said. What you need before the kingdom comes, what you need is to repent. You need to repent. You need to believe that I am a Savior. You need to believe that you need a Savior. What was their response? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It's the same message of the world today. But not in other parts of the world. Today, in Africa, parts of the Far East... Do you confirm that Jesus is Lord and Savior? Do you confirm? Or do you rely upon what you are? You are to be Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu. You are Christian. Will you recant? No. Then bring his family out into the street and let the soldiers do all kinds of horrible things. Now will you recant? No. Then you will die. We better have something more than just consent and affirmation. This better be the work of the Holy Spirit. Or you and I will falter. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. And by the way, you know the end of Paul was had was taken from him by Nero. For I know now watch carefully the words here. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed that the world is offended by my message. For, reason is, I know. I know. It's the word here for not because I've experienced it necessarily, is because I I just know it cognitively. The Spirit of God has confirmed it. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to What's the next word? I am convinced that he is able to guard what he did here. Not me guarding it. I am convinced. I am convinced that he, God, is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. So why do I keep on believing? Even in the toughest days. Even when I've blown it and I'm so embarrassed, why do I keep on believing? Because God guards you and you keep on believing because God says you will keep on believing. That's the message of the Scripture. That is the reason why you affirm not only what you believe and see in the Scriptures, but also yes. I would have given up believing a long time ago if it were not for God guarding. As our kids grow up and go into those years in which they're accepting or rejecting things on their own, they need this message. The last thing in the world that you and I can tell our children is, well, I don't know, but have you done this and this and this? I mean, there's nothing wrong with giving information of affirmation. But when we subject them, are you reading your Bible? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? And are you doing that? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. Be careful. Be careful how you phrase your questions. You may create more doubt. Go back to the Scriptures. Go back to the Scriptures, as we're reading here today. And so, I will guard you. 
The word there is, I entrust to another person a very precious thing. I entrust to God. I don't worry about losing it. Why? Because God guards my salvation. He guards Jacob's. It's the reason why in John 10 he says, Who can take you from the hand of God? There is no one. Is Satan a one? <laughs> He's a being, so not even Satan. Not even you. People quite frequently say, Well, no, I can't lose my salvation, but I, uh, I can choose to lose it. Aren't you a person? And Christ said, do you think I'm going to send my son to die for you and, act, and ask you to act like Christ? We'd all lose it if it were not for Christ guarding us. And it's not that you and I, now, you know, people, some people take this direction. Well, if that were true, then I would just go out and, wow, I'd really live it up and do all the sinful things I've always wanted to do, and you're telling me I'd still go to heaven? No. I'd tell you, you never had a start. Because true believers don't desire to live like they used to anymore. There is that inside witness to say, I want to obey. Lord, what is it in my life? Examine my life. Your prayer is like with David. Search me, O God, and know my ways. Lord, if you see anything that is not proper here, please, I want to know. You beg God to tell you. If I profess to be a Christian and and I don't want God to tell me anything, and I don't want anybody else to tell me anything, and I'm just going to throw out the statement, well, you can't judge me. I know I'm a Christian. That's good enough for me. Ooh. That's a real question mark, isn't it? Because it doesn't align with Scripture. It's not feelings. It's Scripture. Well, the last one I want to read this morning is First Peter, where we were last week, and I've done these verses in preparatory for this. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Five is where we want to emphasize. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, it says God's goodness toward those in distress and misery. Every sinner is there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has, who has? God. God has caused us to be what? Folks, there's never been such an open and shut case as this issue in the Scriptures. Has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He died, he was buried, he rose again so that we would not have a dead hope, but a living hope. He guards me from the point of birth all the way to redemption of our bodies and to be with Christ forever. Then he says this, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, I have an inheritance for you. He's giving that here. I since you now are adopted into the family or co-heir with Christ, I have an inheritance for you. You may live another 80 years like me, but, you know, here it is. You have an inheritance. I guard you. That is your inheritance. I would be a liar if you don't end up there. So you have an inheritance. And he gives it three characteristics as we studied last week, but I'll just quickly give it to you, which is imperishable. There's no decay. It's undefiled. It's, there's no ruin to it and will not fade away. It will not lose its worth. 
It's reserved. It's passive voice again. It is reserved by God in heaven for you who are protected. You are guarded. Here it is again. By the power of God through faith. And you know you have that because you keep on believing. And in that keep on believing lifestyle, there are times you say, I confess that. That was wrong. I was angry. And that was wrong. I sinned. I lied. I did this. But we keep on believing. And this inheritance is not a mansion You may walk on streets of gold, but you're not going to own them, okay? Here's something greater than streets of gold. Here's something greater than a mansion. Even though those things are reality there, they're true. I don't doubt that. But coming through this sanctification process, arriving here, what's the inheritance? To be glorified with him. For Jesus to say simply, my son, my child, wow. What a wonderful journey. It's so glad to have you home. And because of your obedience, not for salvation, but because of your surrenderedness, I give you this capacity to enjoy me for eternity. That's the reason why we say there's some credible proof in Scripture that some will have greater capacities than others. Somebody said, well, what makes the difference? We're all going to be there anyway. I don't know of a genuine Christian that ever really means that. Because of the Spirit in us, we want to have the greatest capacity possible to glorify Him. All right, let's sum it up. Genuine faith must be founded on truth. That was our big point that we started with. Genuine faith must be founded on truth. So what's the point of that little phrase. Let me give you an old, old hymn. It's on the next slide, I believe. Anybody heard of this one? He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. Amen? Amen. Now you're so shell-shocked you won't even say, yes, yes, okay. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Yes. He lives, he lives, yes, yes. Salvation to impart, yes. You ask me how I know he lives? Baloney. That is so subjective. He lives within my heart. That is true. How do I know that he lives? Not because of some emotion but because of information that is correct and I have seen and understood and I believe and I rely upon that truth because it is truth and that is the confirmation. Hymn writers many times get it right, but they're like the rest of us. Sometimes hymn writers get it wrong. And we go out and sing this to the top of our voice and there is 99, 98.5% truth there. But watch it. You ask me how I know he lives? Because of his work in me. That's how I know he lives. It comes from Scripture. Tell an eight-year-old because he lives within his heart. 
I don't want to be foolish, but I'm just saying, be careful. A six-year-old, a seven-year-old, he always going to take his shirt off trying to find him. We just need to be sensitive. It's God's truth. It's not mine. It's not yours. They can handle it. They can handle it. They can handle truth. If they, if they are truly expressing genuine faith, they can genuinely accept truth. Some of you have been to Niagara Falls, I'm sure. Back in the 1800s, there was a Frenchman by the name of Blondin. He was a typewriter artist. This guy would come to the States, and he had an 1,100-foot rope. Started off with just a, like a, just a, not a steel cable, but a rope. 1,100 feet across from the Canadian side of the falls to the American side. And he would walk it. He first began to do it with a 40-pound balancing stick, I guess you would call it. Then one day he asked his manager, do you really believe I can do it again? He said, yes. I believe you can do it as many times as you want to. He said, fine, climb on my back and let's go. And he did it. His manager did it. He did it many times. Walked across with his manager on his back. I bet he was always saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. <laughs> Don't let me down now. <laughs> He did it so many times, and people would stand on both sides, and they would say, Blondin, Blondin, you know, all the accolades and praises. Now, it is said, so I'll leave it at that point. The manager part is true. But it was said that he would also take a wheelbarrow, and that part is true. And he would take a wheelbarrow across. And one day they were all just jumping and praising him. He did it over 35 times. And on the American side, he went to the crowd and said, Do you believe I can do it going back again and again and again? Yes. Okay, who wants to volunteer? That's that point. Who's going to jump in the wheelbarrow? You believe all that Christ has said, all that he, he died for you, rose again the third day, salvation is free, forgives you of all of your sins? Who's ready to jump in the wheelbarrow of, wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow of Christ and let Christ take you across? Because it's nothing of you. Am I going to rely upon my baptism, my church membership, my doing good? I think so. I hope so. Or do I say, it is Christ and Christ alone? That's true, genuine faith true, genuine faith. Let me ask you a couple questions, please. The Bible says that Jesus died, was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Let me ask you, do you believe that? Just answer to yourself, do you believe that? And I would say there with few exceptions, there would, everybody would believe that. Does that make a person saved, a born-again believer? No. Number two, I believe this information is correctly stated and I am persuaded to believe it is factual. Would that save me? No. I believe Mormonism is true. 
under their interpretation. I believe it's a body of information. And I believe what they say is, some, is accurate. It's not accurate in regards to biblical truth, but the information, book after book, they undoubtedly copy it accurately, I would assume. But is there the third step? No. There's not the third component. The third component is based on a lie. Because Christ is deity. He's not the brother of Satan. He is exactly what the scripture says that he is. So, the third one. I'm not only persuaded to believe it, but I personally place my trust in Christ, and Christ alone there is nothing else that I rely on. If I were to die this very moment and had three seconds of, I wouldn't ask our elders to go baptize me real quick, and I wouldn't ask Dave Aldrin to check my membership to make sure my name is on there. It's settled. Yes. Christ is sufficient alone. That is genuine faith. Now you'd say, wow, sure created a lot of chaos here this morning. And I won't enjoy my lunch very well. Uh, I don't think there's anybody. But I'm serious, folks. I'm very serious. We, you and I, your eternity's at stake. You say, well, I'm too embarrassed. I wouldn't be embarrassed. I was baptized three times before I got it right. I keep getting baptized and keep going back and getting saved. And they'd say, well, you can't be baptized until after you're saved. And I just thought, man, I'm wet. But the fourth time, I knew. <laughs> I knew. I'm saying, if you can't check, in all honesty, just between you and the Lord, come and talk to us. It ought to be important enough to you where you're going to spend eternity. It ought to be important enough to you that the God that created you, you want to make sure you end up giving him all the honor and glory. It's not wrong to question. Some of you would say, no, I don't question it. I've settled it. That's great because you settled it biblically. Let's pray. Father, the word faith has been stretched and warped, distorted, that when we read the scriptures, we have all kinds of reinterpretations. And I would ask this morning, Lord, not because of me, but I know you can make sense of this. Lord, we simply are the communicators. And Father, I would ask that by your Spirit you would make faith extremely clear in those that you have chosen. And Lord, maybe there's somebody here this morning that is just saying, well, I'd like to be saved, but I don't know if I'm the chosen. May they re be reminded of what Jesus said. If you come to me, I will not turn you away. So Lord, all they need to do is come. Right where they're seated. They don't have to make any other motion. In their heart, Lord, I believe that I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I am blinded. Only you can make me see and I sense in my heart, I see, I want to be a slave of Christ. 
I want, I desire my sins to be forgiven. I want my life to count. You've made it crystal clear. I didn't used to see this. It was confusing, but I, I see. I want you. I love you. Then, Father, our message is surrender. You've done your work, and now they express, yes, I trust my eternal destiny to you. And I not only want you to forgive me of my sins, I want you to turn me from my sins. I don't want to be the person that I used to be. And Father, may they settle that once for all, right where they are seated. Having done that, may they express that to their friends around them. Because, Lord, they will need to be encouraged in their new life in Christ. Father, enable us as we go forth this week to clearly state the message. Thank you, Lord. You said that you loved us, and you do, and it's evident. Why? I don't know. But you're God, and you chose to love us. And we thank you. And we thank you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.